Welcome to this month's Drinking on the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Bill Howell, here on KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soul Dotna, your listener-supported public radio station for the central Kenai Peninsula. As always, thanks to Recess Duty for playing us in with our theme song. Got a good show for you this month, a couple of very interesting interviews, but as always, let's start with beer news. Cooper Landing Brewing Company has reopened, as has the Blue Yeti food truck. In a surprising move, Uber has announced the closure of its alcohol delivery app, Drizzly, only three years after acquiring it for a hefty $1.1 billion. The service experienced significant growth during the pandemic with a 300% year-over-year increase in 2021. Despite the initial success, Uber plans to shut down Drizzly in March 2024. Uber had acquired Drizzly with the intention of operating it as a standalone app and integrating it within the Uber Eats interface. The app provided alcohol delivery services to customers in over 1,400 cities. However, recent cybersecurity concerns highlighted by a 2020 hack exposing data of 2.5 million customers played a role in Drizzly's demise. The Federal Trade Commission took action against Drizzly's CEO, requiring the implementation of a security program for companies collecting information from over 25,000 people. The 2024 Alaska Craft Brew and Barley Wine Festival will be coming back to the Denina Center in Anchorage on the 2nd and 3rd of February. There will be three sessions from 6 to 10 p.m. on Friday and Saturday evenings and an afternoon session from noon to 4 p.m. on Saturday. Live music will be provided by The Stack on Friday, Nothing But Trouble on Saturday afternoon, and DJ Spencer Lee on Saturday evening. General admission tickets for any session are $75, which includes 15 sample tickets. There are also VIP tickets available for $125 each. VIP ticket holders receive premium access to the general session. A VIP ticket holder includes VIP entrance, no waiting in line, one swag bag, one growler, and one food voucher, and 15 sample tickets. Only 300 VIP tickets are available. Designated driver tickets are also available for $10. Tickets are on sale now. Visit www.alaskacraftbrewandbarleywine.com to purchase tickets and for more information. The Ship Creek Brewing Company in Anchorage is now open for business at 5801 Arctic Boulevard. 
I will have an interview with its brewer later in the show. That's it for this month's beer news. Up next, we have Greg Haas from Stony Creek Brewing in Seward. It's pick-click give time for Alaskans. When you file for the Alaska Permanent Fund dividend, you can support your favorite nonprofit organizations. Do you value public radio? Donations help KDLL provide the news, features, and entertainment programming you trust from around the world and right here at home. Apply for your dividend at pfd.alaska.gov by March 31st. And pick, click, give to help your favorite organizations. Thanks. Greg Haas, the owner-brewer at Stony Creek Brewing in Seward. Greg, how are you this afternoon, sir? Doing pretty wonderful. It's a little cold out there, but doing uh, doing great this year. So it's been, uh, I don't know, close to a year, I think, since we last had you on. Why don't you tell folks how things are going at Stony Creek? Well, thanks. Yeah, actually, I was thinking about our last conversation. I, uh, I think that was when we were at the point saying, you know, we felt good launching about three years ago, and and uh, last year, our second conversation, I, I really was probably at that stage where I was learning a lot about consistency, quality, just getting familiar with a, with a new brew system to me. And uh, going into, uh, heading into year four now, uh, I, am, I am really excited about some of the potential and the work that we've been doing here in Seward and how we've been growing, just making beers and having fun. Now, you guys don't currently have a tap room, right? We have a very small, small tap room. We don't put a lot of hours into it. Uh, we definitely uh, just have folks from the community that, that ask me. We open up maybe a few hours here and there, and, and uh, that's also something that maybe we're looking at expanding on this coming summer for some uh, pretty measured growth, but no large facility like you see at most of the other breweries around here. So if people go over to Seward and they want to find your beer, where should they go to get it? Well, we are in, uh, we're in any, any and all of uh, Seward's most favorite restaurants and watering holes. We have taps at the Breeze Inn, Flamingo, Cookery. Uh, we also have uh, the Gateway has been real supportive with their license. There's a, a, lot, of, a lot of options, and uh, we're just trying to have fun with uh, folks here in, uh, in town uh, as, as best we can. I know you've done some events and some beer dinners and things like at the Flamingo, right? Right. Yeah, they've been real good to us. The ownership uh, kind of came in to buy buy out the old thorns at the same time that we were getting going, and we've kind of got some kindred interests. Uh, the, the the owners there are real good friends, and and so they've been uh, very very supportive with helping us uh, showcase our beers while they also showcase some great cocktails as well. So why don't you describe what system you are brewing on now? found a dormant system that had been uh, put up in northern Colorado in a connex that, uh, from a, a great brewery that they were looking to move on. And so that took some time to get up here, and it also took some time to learn the operation, uh, learn the, you know, the efficiency of the system, how to, the, the, the flow of it. Maybe a couple stuck sparges, which I was kicking myself for, and and uh, it's a seven barrel system. So we put out about 200 to 220 gallons per batch, and uh, try to use at least uh, we have at least two different yeast strains that we focus in on, and I've got a few more uh, as well that depending on the styles, so we can be pretty accurate uh, to the or pretty faithful back to the original source uh, and the inspirations there. Cool. So what beers do you have out in circulation right now? 
Uh, right now, we've got our kind of our flagships. We've got a very much of a West Coast piney style uh, IPA called Thai Hacker, and that's continuing to be our uh, flagship. Uh, we've got uh, an amber and a Kolsch, which all both use uh, a uh, European, a lot of European hops, as well as a good uh, lager yeast that we ferment a little bit warmer. Uh, something fun that we've been doing is uh, putting blueberries into a Hefeweizen, fermenting it out very dry. Uh, maybe you might get a little bit of a peachish hue to it, but it's a, it's a clean Hefeweizen, a lot of good aromas and flavors in there with that, uh, with that German weedy yeast. And then we also do a, a pale ale that we add some spruce to, which has been real popular. I, I think a lot of consumers like seeing things that are local and trying to be creative. So we've got a, a few other lighter beers uh, that are working out nicely. And uh, so those have been the ones that you see the most. Uh, I think actually up in uh, at Alieska, they've got a smattering of some different beers, including our Imperial Stout. So we definitely are getting into some darker beer styles as well. Speaking of uh, out of uh, the area, you're going to be up at the Beer and Barley Wine Festival in the first weekend in February? Yeah, that's uh, definitely a, a must-stop for us. I, I, it's the best chance for me to reconnect with some of the other breweries. They've become real good friends and mentors, helped me uh, get going. And now that we're pretty stable, uh, real happy with our distribution uh, around the area and around Seward and getting some tips. Uh, it's also fun just to go in there and chat with folks. i got a couple buddies that are, are coming in to help, and so that gives me a chance to make some small talk and hear what people are looking for and what they like. Seward's definitely, a, a, you know, it's got that romanticism. A lot of people like to come down in the summer. The fun thing is our, our restaurant owners are, are locals, and they have a lot of fun running unique, great foods uh, in the summertime. And so it gives us a chance to also promote what Seward can be uh, off-season. How about the uh, Frozen River Fest? Are you guys going to make that this year? Yes, and I'll tell you, after last year, boy, we had such a great, <laughs> great time. Uh, you know, watching that snow come in all day long, and then just as it cleared out, uh, every it felt like you were just around your neighbors having a great bonfire, really, you know, trying some unique beers. Uh, I love the effort that the chamber puts into to making it happen, so that's definitely on my radar, and I really am excited to be coming back over. Cool, cool. Well, we'll be happy to see you. I should see you at both fests, I'm sure. So... What do you got coming up in the near future? You're bringing any new beers online, any new pieces of equipment, anything uh, that you want to talk about? Yeah, I think uh, coming up for me is just about dialing in on, on the hops uh, that I want to be using. I, I feel good. I, I'm really fortunate to have just have such amazing water. So we've got a well. We've got really good water. We've been working very well with the state and, and how we how we operate. Uh, so that's been kind of – it's very stable, and that's real good. Uh, so up next is just getting a good sense of uh, the right balance of alcohol and and then getting the right mouthfeel uh, with our fermentation. Uh, and then in that recipe, kind of tweaking my hops ratios just a little bit. I've had some fun getting a hold of everybody. uses a lot of Simcoe and Amarillo and Citra. I've been getting a hold of Zappa and Cashmere, maybe some Columbus, just some some different uh, different hops. Give it, uh, you know, I like to have a lot of tropical flavors. I like to kind of dial in on on uh, the the consistency and in, in that side. Uh, that's been a lot of fun. In the equipment side, like you're asking, I've got a new, I've got a, a big 14 barrel fermenter. We're going to get that plumbed in, and uh, it's been nice. We've been in Seward long enough. We're starting to have some conversations with some accounts who are thinking, hey, the the market's still in demand for local, unique beers. 
Uh, so we're, we're looking at expanding to uh, maybe making some ciders and some wines, uh, just doing some things that the local owners get excited to help share with their customers. There's a lot of great places around here, and we want to be a, a kind of a backbone in, in uh, helping them grow. So obviously you've got your, your you've got your tap accounts, and when your tap room is open, I assume you're filling growlers. Are you doing any other sort of packaging? Are you guys doing crowlers, or are you going to start doing a little canning? What do you see as your future in that? Yeah, I think the the future there is definitely getting into some canning. Uh, we want to do some on-premise sale uh, on or some, excuse me, some direct sales for off-premise consumption. Uh, we want to uh, put some beers in cans because there's a great camping and RV community coming down to Seward every year. And I think that we can provide the right product that goes with their bonfires and, and their fun down here. Uh, so you're right on the nose there, Bill. The, uh, the canning is definitely in our future. Uh, we definitely we also like filling growlers uh, and getting getting beer out to people. Cool. So you still just a one-man operation? Have you got any plans to expand your staff or anything like that? Is that tied in with your taproom, potential taproom plans? Yep, that's exactly it. Uh, well, my, my wife's taken on quite a bit of the admin, so she's been uh, uh, amazing and super helpful. We, we, we want to continue to be just a, a small, quaint operation, uh, but we, we do all the deliveries ourselves, and I do think that we're at the point where there's probably going to be some folks who just enjoy beer and enjoy the process of it and probably sync up with them and, and uh, bring them into the, into the fold. I think we're a, a good, solid operation over here. I, I'm really having a lot of fun. Uh, the, the learning, I feel, has gotten me to the point where uh, I'm excited about the beers that we're making. I've got a good sense as to, uh, to where they're going. Uh, we like working with some of the, uh, the new and smaller restaurants up there in Anchorage. Uh, and we're we're just having a lot of fun pairing up with some of the uh, the adventure outfits, and so that way, uh, when folks are wanting to talk about all the the kayaking, the hiking, the fishing, the things they're doing coming over here in Seward, uh, we want to help them celebrate it. So, I I think uh, people coming through, uh, if they hit me up on Facebook or let me know that they're coming into town, we'll find a way to meet up and hear about their stories and hear about what they like with beer. To it's a great community, and people are real excited for new flavors and different flavors, and uh, we want to be there. Excellent. So one final question. Uh, you mentioned your Imperial Stout on up at uh, uh, Alieska. Are you going to be entering anything into the contest at uh, the Craft Beer and Barley Wine Festival? Yeah, I think I've got um, – I, I feel really good with my Spruce Pale Ale. Uh, that's something that's got some really nice notes to it. And then, uh, you know, last year I entered my coffee stout, which was uh, a little bit more of a kind of a, an easy drinking stout. I, I decided to throw a lot at the uh, Imperial Stout this year, feeling really good with it. And I, I'd like to get some feedback because there's some wonderful judges, uh, some wonderful competition. And you get a sense to see how you're doing, uh, you know, once, twice a year with a few with the, the really good competitions that we do here in the state. It's a great way to, to see how I'm doing and, and how they compete, uh, compare. So we, we actually named it Sto uh, Stokel's Imperial Stout. My wife was uh, saying, yeah, yeah, we're, that's probably one of the names that we're really proud of because a lot of folks don't know that uh, Ambassador Stokel was the fellow who sold Alaska from Russia. So we, we created our beer as an homage to the other guy, to the guy on the other side of the table. And it's got a, a, lot, of, a lot of roasted malt, a lot of coffee malt, uh, a lot of chocolate malt. 
and just just good toffee flavors. Really happy with uh, with how that turned out, and and uh, it's been nice getting it out into a few spots around uh, around who you know is interested in those kind of dark beers and uh, getting that feedback. Yeah, that's great. Everybody remembers Seward, but nobody remembers the guy who was sitting across the table from him negotiating the deal. Well, hey, Greg, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to seeing you up in uh, Anchorage here in a week or so and uh, trying some more of your stuff. And then again, a couple weeks after that at uh, Frozen River Fest. Yeah, some great events coming up. Good, good time to celebrate beer and what we're doing here in the state, making some tasty beverages. So thanks, Bill, for what you do to help promote it. No, not a problem. All righty, well, this is Drinking on the Last Frontier, KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldana. We'll be right back with our next segment. Hi, I'm Anoush Zamarodi, host of the TED Radio Hour from NPR, where we grapple with the biggest questions of our time. Like, what's our civic duty in the 21st century? The greatest threat to our democracy is our blind faith in it. We have an assumption that it's just going to be there for us. Join us every week for insights from the world's greatest thinkers on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. 5 p.m. Sundays on 91.9 FM, KDLL. This is the time of year when breweries all across Alaska typically release their strong barrel-aged beers. But giving beer time to mature is nothing new. And in centuries past, it wasn't done by halves. While a modern lager might spend a few weeks aging and a barrel-aged ale typically sits a couple of years in the wood, once upon a time, beers could mature for decades. First, a little explanation of old British brewing terminology as an order. In the 18th and 19th centuries, ale in Britain was conditioned in two ways. It could be sold either mild, that is, young, usually no more than a week or two after being racked into barrels, or stock, aged for months or even years before sale. Nor was aging limited to commercial breweries. Until the middle of the 19th century, much of the beer in Britain was produced by domestic brewers, that is, brewed in a residence for the use of the family, servants, and staff. Unburdened by commercial considerations, the household brewer could afford to let beer mature for what appears to be a ridiculous length of time today. This all began to change at the end of the 19th century. A witness before a parliamentary committee in 1899 testified as follows, quote, The taste for fresh ale, as against stock ales, set in some 20 years or more ago, and it has been steadily progressive without any tendency to reversion. And even within the past few years, I have known brewers who previously brewed their pale ales on stock principles to abandon stock beer brewing and have found that the ales brewed on running ale lines have given greater satisfaction. Still, a few long-aged beers did struggle on in the 20th century, maintaining an ancient tradition. Over the centuries, many types of long-aged beer were produced in Britain, both privately and commercially. Here are four different examples. The first example is March or October beer. Before 1850, when all country houses of any importance still brewed their own beer, the local gentry were extremely proud of their special October beer. Throughout the year, household brewers made mild ales drunk fresh for day-to-day use. 
but once or twice a year, they made something stronger, a beer reserved for special occasions and honored guests. These strong beers were mostly made when the ambient temperatures were best for brewing, either March or October, hence the names March beer and October beer. Many preferred October on account of the several months of cold weather that followed. The theory behind brewing in October went like this. At the time of brewing, the temperature would be perfect for the initial fermentation. As the weather became colder, the fermentation would slow and eventually stop. When the warmer spring arrived, it woke up the yeast and a second fermentation began to complete the job. But the beer still wasn't ready to be drunk. It was left until at least September before being tapped. A longer wait was recommended for those who could keep their patience. Without the monetary constraints of commercial brewers, domestic brewers could afford to leave their beer to mature for years. Some wouldn't touch their October beer until it was at least three years old. Others boasted of beer kept five or even ten years, so strong that it could only be safely consumed by the wine glass. Locally, Kenai River Brewing Company has revived this tradition with its Winter Warlock Old Ale. Brewed each October, it undergoes a year-long maturation process before being tapped on October 1st of the following year. A second example was the Stock Pale Ale. Today's drinkers want their IPA as fresh as possible, preferably grabbed directly from the bottling or kegging line and consumed on the spot. Victorian Brits had different expectations. The discerning IPA drinker wanted a properly matured beer, something like Bass. Bass's method of maturing pale ale sounds utterly, utterly crazy, but it is confirmed by several independent sources. It received no careful curation in a cool cellar. After being racked into casks, it was piled up in the brewery yard, open to the elements, with only a little wetted straw in the warmest weather as protection. After a year of this brutal treatment, it was deemed ready to be shipped to India, toughened enough during its time in the yard to survive the long trip, and helped by Britannomyces, which stripped everything fermentable that an infecting bacteria might feed on. When East India Company officials and army officers got their hands on a bottle of bass, the beer inside was 18 months old. Drinkers back in Britain had to make do with a version six months younger. A few years ago, Zach Henry and I produced a recreation of this beer at St. Elias Brewing. While we didn't leave the beer outside for a year, the climate in Alaska is just a bit more brutal than that of England, we did age it for over a year in a wooden barrel heavily dosed with Britannomyces. The result was truly amazing and unlike almost any other beer I've ever tasted. It was also so far removed from what today's beer drinker expects that almost no one else would drink it. But for those of us who really love well-aged beer, it was heaven. A third example of aged beers is Russian Stout. Originally brewed for Catherine the Great's court, Russian stout was always given time to mature properly. During the 19th century, aging a strong stout for a year or two wouldn't have been out of the ordinary. Even in the 1930s, Barclay Perkins Brewery's advertisements still boasted a minimum of two years aging in wooden vats at a time when such long aging had become a rarity. Russian stout's secondary conditioning with Brettanomyces couldn't be rushed. The wild yeast slowly chewed its way through the less fermentable sugars 
dropping the racking gravity of 1034 to a final gravity of 1024, and in the process, boosting the alcohol by volume from 9% to 10.5. Aging didn't end with bottling. With Libertanomyces still present, Russian stout had excellent protection against oxidation and not just surviving, but improving over decades. Bottles over 25 years old have been found to be in excellent condition when finally consumed. A final aged beer example would be so-called maturity ales. His heir coming of age was an opportunity for a landowner to show off by entertaining hundreds or even thousands of guests. Oxen and sheep would be slaughtered and roasted for the poor, while the higher orders would feast magnificently in the main house. Beer was central to the celebrations, but not just any beer. At the heir's birth, a special strong brew was made in the country house's brewery, using large quantities of the very best ingredients. It was then laid down in a cellar and forgotten, to be drunk when the heir turned 21. Now that's what I call patience. Guests appreciated the time and effort spent brewing this very special beer. The following is an 1839 edition of the Staffordshire Advertiser. The poor of the neighborhood, upward of 4,000 in number, were liberally entertained with old English fare under an extensive and splendid marquee in the park. There was an abundant supply of nut-brown ale, some famous stuff which many of the partakers declared was far preferable to champagne. Majority ales were usually brewed domestically. Surprisingly, though, the tradition was practiced at one large Edinburgh brewer, William Younger, even continuing into the 20th century. In this case, it wasn't just a privilege reserved for the Younger family heir, but rather for all members of the family. At every birth, a miniature brew of majority ale was produced in the brewery and carefully stored to be drunk 21 years later. Sadly, aging beer fell out of fashion toward the end of the 1800s, with just a handful of beers like Russian Stout clinging on. Only in the past 25 years has a new generation of brewers rediscovered the delights of patiently matured beer can offer and revived a centuries-old tradition. So keep an eye out for the many barrel-aged brews being released at this time of year. This is Drinky on the Last Frontier, KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldatna. We'll be right back with our next segment. Hello, and welcome to the Veritas Variety Review with your co-host, Will Burnett. Bringing you a myriad of music spawning from the depths of subpopular music's underbelly. Every other Saturday at 7 p.m. Tune in, and you may be shocked to hear something new and extreme from all over the world. Hello and welcome back to Drinking on the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Bill Howell, here on KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldatna. Up next, we've got J.C. Sneed, the owner, and Nick Carrillo, the brewer at the brand new Ship Creek Brewing Company in Anchorage. Gentlemen, how are you doing today? Oh, we're doing great. Doing great. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us. So, you guys have been open, what, less than a month now? Yeah, I think we opened on the 9th, uh, so about two and a half weeks we've been open. Excellent. So tell us about your brewery and your operation there a little bit. We're a, uh, for lack of a better 
word, probably quaint little brewery on Arctic here, uh, just kind of producing fun little beers that for now we're just kind of testing everything out, kind of getting a feel for uh, Anchorage and, you know, the area and seeing what people are kind of in the mood for, honestly. But yeah, just kind of having fun with it for now. So how did you guys come into the brewing game? Are you guys home brewers? Have you had any classroom education? What's your background? We've actually talked before when I was the uh, head brewer, brewery operations manager for uh, Cooper Landing Brewing Company. Okay, yep, that's right. I thought it was familiar. I originally started, yeah, like brewing in my basement with a, with a buddy of mine and uh, slowly started entering competitions and uh, eventually got lucky enough and caught a break getting a job down there at Cooper Landing. And one thing after another, eventually I was at Magnetic North Brewing for about a year. And eventually when we were ready to start this project, it was like like a fresh start, kind of a new uh, perspective on being in town now, working with alongside my peers and stuff. It's, it's nice. So, uh, great. Tell us a little bit about your the system that you're brewing on. It's a little uh, two-vessel. It's a little uh, oversized four. So we have a five-and-a-half-barrel brew kettle. It's all electric. And then a uh, oversized four-barrel mash tun as well. And for an HLT, we have three wicked uh, water heaters all linked up together that produce 180-degree water, so I can sparge on demand right there. Three little four-and-a-half-barrel. Four-and-a-half-barrel fermenters and uh, one four-and-a-half-barrel bright tank. So, obviously, that's a, I'm guessing that's a starter system. You guys probably are going to need something bigger if uh, experience what I've seen in breweries in yeah. Alaska is anything to go by. Have you guys got uh, room to expand in your current location? No, we're, oh. we're, we're pretty tight in this current location. You know, when we were starting this project, we locally found the mash tun and kettle for a pretty good price, and it was was barely used. So we picked that up about a year ago while we were, you know, thinking and trying to start this project. And then it's all stout. It's a stout system. I believe they're a Portland-based company. Yep. yep. And we matched the – I reached out to stout, kind of got their opinions on some things, and uh, kind of matched all the tanks so they're all stout brand. And uh, kind of went from there. This is a good starter system. We don't know growth yet, possibly in the future, but this is a good starter for us. So what about your uh, tap room? How many seats do you have? If I recall, based on what I saw on Facebook, you guys are either doing or going to do like pizzas and stuff? Yeah, so we got a pizza oven imported from Italy. So we'll, we'll be doing Napoleon-style pizzas, uh, anywhere from 10 to 12-inch pizzas, personal pizzas for the, for the tap room, and then also doing some delivery service. The tap room seats... The occupancy is 41. Currently, we have 30 seats just, just for space. We might add some in the future, but for now, it's just 30 seats in total. The pizza oven, we had some problems with the UL listing on it, so actually that had to be returned, and uh, they're shipping us a new one the week of the 29th. So hopefully, come February, first week of February, we'll have pizzas and beer. Hopefully, if all goes well. And are you guys planning to continue operating under your brewery taproom license, or are you going to get a, try and get a restaurant eating place license? Yeah, currently it's just under the brewery license. Limited, limited food is what it is. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about your brewing philosophy. What kind of beers do you like to brew? What kind of beers do you want to be brewing and serving? It's a little bit of back and forth between what I want and, of course, what the, the market's demanding a little bit. <laughs> Unfortunately, but fortunately at the same time, because I mean, uh, even though 63-ish percent of demand is IPA, which means that, you know, I got to keep at least out of eight taps, maybe two or three of those have to be hoppier beers to satisfy the demand. My personal philosophy is uh, I'm a big fan of Belgian beers and lagers. And my personal preference for what I like to brew is sour ales. I, I have a lot of fun with those. 
Okay. So what have you got on tap right now? Got a smash IPA, which is just two row and some cryo citra, which has been a fan favorite so far. We're already down to our last couple kegs of that. We have a Baltic porter that was brewed fairly traditionally, fermented with uh, a little bit of a blend of yeast and sat around a little bit extra just to kind of round out for the uh, the actual release, the actual openings when we put it on tap. A uh, blonde ale or golden ale that's brewed with uh, Saz and uh, honey malt. Uh, it's kind of reminiscent of like a German lager or ale. It's just kind of like mobile hop and very clean, a little bit sweet. And then we also have a uh, Katarina style sour, a uh, South American style sour that's very light, very easy drinking, brewed with blueberries and lemon peel. That's in the uh, lower ABV area for uh, the sour fans that like to come in here and test out what's new in town. Yeah, I've got a uh, extra malty red ale, the maltiest red ale in Anchorage coming to uh, the tap room here. Okay. So what kind of hours are you guys keeping so that if anybody is passing through Anchorage or like me is going to be up there next weekend for the beer festival, what uh, when yeah. are you guys open? Right now we're kind of playing with the hours being new. We're currently open seven days a week. That'll probably end up changing just since we're the new shiny penny in town. We wanted to capitalize on you know, full mm-hmm. house. If it's busy, you know, people can come a different day to try our beers. 4 p.m. to 8 p.m. weekdays. Uh, and then Friday is 4 to 9 since we got that extra hour. Saturday is 2 to 9. And Sunday is 2 to 8. And are you guys going to be at the, uh, are you going to have a booth at the Craft uh, Brew and Barley Wine Festival? <laughs> we, w- we, w- we would love to, but just getting open and getting yeah. our you yeah. know, feet on the ground here, it's kind of tough. That, no, I like understand. To do that one. And the Frozen River is another one. That it's, it's one of Nick's favorite events. And just the demand and, and our supply right now, it's, it's just hard to, it's hard to accommodate. <laughs> well, as always, next year. But uh, hopefully we will see you down here come uh, come 2025. Yeah. Oh, we're planning on it. Yeah. Once people have done it, they always want to come back. Yeah, Something man. about standing in the snow drinking beer. I don't I know. I think one of Nick's beers actually won one of the... Uh, yeah, I think he did. Yeah, just a couple of years ago. So let's see what else. Obviously, I know, realize you guys are just getting, you're finding your feet and everything like that. But looking ahead, say, another year or two, what do you want to be doing? Do you want to be canning your beers? Do you want to primarily selling out of the tap room and running accounts? Where do you see yourself in a few years? There's kind of two sides of this. As far as the beer side goes, as far as what I'm looking at, hopefully by then, well before then, we'll have cans going. We're hoping to have that as probably the next six months project will be kind of setting up within the next six months canning and use and that kind of stuff and ideas for what we want and where we want it by year hopefully we'll have our barrel program rolling out new releases starting around next year's beer and barley around our one year mark so that kind of coincides pretty well for us we can have our celebration and then also have that beer be available for the beer and barley wine festival every year that's going to line up really nicely cool I hear you saying that you're relatively space constrained right now. So long term, you're going to be looking, probably going to be looking for a bigger location somewhere, right? Yeah, well, if if all goes well and the demand's there and people like our product, at this space, we couldn't really grow. No. Mm-hmm. Just because of the, the square footage. Just, I mean, unless a neighbor moved out and we knocked a wall down, that's the only way, only way we could really grow. So maybe keep this as a smaller pilot system. And then if we want to do a production facility or expand find something different find a larger facility let's look ahead not to years let's look ahead the next month or two what have you guys got planned for like new brews that you're getting ready to release you said you're kegging one up today 
Have you got anything else interesting planned for the next, you know, six weeks to two months? Yeah. Fill the uh, taps. Oh, yeah. Fill them all up. <laughs> We've got four more open. The red ale hopefully will be uh, tapped and ready to go. It's going to set for about a day today. It'll uh, have some time to rest. Of course, we're coming out the gate swinging, so we've got a triple IPA that'll be on draft, hopefully by the end of the or beginning part of the weekend here, brewed with uh, key lime and vanilla. How many IBUs? Uh, about 45. It's not crazy okay. high on the wet hops. We did go uh, pretty hard on the dry hop, though. Okay. And then uh, we do have a traditional German Pilsner coming as well, which has been uh, lagering for about a week and a half now. Excellent. World needs more good Pilsners. Okay, well, is there anything else now that you guys have got your doors open and everything? Yeah, hopefully hopefully we get our taps filled, and then Nick and I travel to the peninsula quite a bit. I, I travel for work. I also work at a trucking company, a local trucking company. Uh, we'd love to have a tap down there. I've, I've talked to the Flats restaurant about possibly getting a, a tap handle there. So possibly in the near future have some some local taps in the Keenisville.net area that, that uh, people can try our craft beer without traveling all the way to Anchorage. That'd be great. If you get anything lined up, make sure you let us know here so we can put the word out on the radio. We'll do it. We'll probably won't have it for a little while just because our stock is kind of low at the four taps currently. So possibly in the next, I don't know, three or four months, look for distribution. We definitely want to get at least one spot down there where we can revolve and uh, keep changing the taps. Nice to be able to get it without going all the way up there. Yeah, we'd love you guys to come. It's a pretty fun atmosphere. I think the pizza, I think people really like the pizza and the beer combination once we get the pizza oven going. It's been a great turnout so far. The, the local community really, and the beer nerds have come out and really supported us. I like what we're doing. So I plan on swinging by when I'm up there for the Beer and Barley Wine Festival. Check you guys out. So I'll awesome. uh, see you in a, that weekend. Yeah. But the nice thing is, too, is that uh, if the brewery's closed and people are, are making their way through town, you know, because we open up a little bit later in the afternoon sometimes, they can always swing over to Tent City, where hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll keep about two or three taps always loaded up over there full of some of the fun rotating stuff that's coming out here. Or eventually down the road, probably in about six months to a year, we'll have some established flagships starting to come out. Good to know. Well, hey, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us. Cheers, everybody. Thanks. This is Drinking on the Last Frontier, KDLL 91.9 FM, Kenai Soldatna. We'll be right back with our next segment. Don't forget to tune in on Sunday nights from 7 to 9 p.m. right here on KDLL 91.9 FM to catch the show Pickled Beats, where I, your host, Josie Oliva, will be playing you a curated set of music inspired by an obscure subgenre or an oddly specific theme. Hello and welcome back to Drinking on the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Bill Howell, here on KDLL 91.9 FM Kenai Soldatna. In the next segment, we'll talk about Beer's Vital Statistics. While the acronyms of Beer's Vital Stats, ABV, IBU, SRM, and OG, may seem like alphabet soup to the uninitiated, Alcohol by volume, international bittering units, standard reference method, and original gravity are all integral to understanding beer. In this segment, I'll define these vital stats and explain how they're useful. Have you ever stood in the beer aisle wondering, what style am I in the mood for? Do I want a 22-ounce bomber or a four-pack of 16-ounce cans? Should I try a new brewery's beer or just grab one of my go-tos? With so many options available for craft lovers, the easiest way to choose a beer is by style. 
However, knowing a beer's vital stats can help your decision-making process. Specifically, a beer's alcohol by volume, or ABV, international bittering units, or IBUs, standard reference method, or SRM, and sometimes, but not always, original gravity, or OG. ABV, or alcohol by volume. Almost every beer a consumer will find on the shelf or on draft will have its ABV clearly labeled. Technically, alcohol by volume is defined as a standard measure of how much alcohol is contained in a given volume of an alcoholic beverage. It's defined as the number of milliliters of pure ethanol present in 100 milliliters of solution at 20 degrees Celsius. The number of liters of pure ethanol is the mass of the ethanol divided by its density at 20 degrees C. While that rather sticky scientific definition might be a mouthful, the fact is the higher the ABV, the boozier a beer will be in its aroma and flavor. For some, ABV is the most important factor for choosing a beer, or at least how many they down in a single sitting. Large-scale lager fans will know that an American lager or American light lager usually clocks in between 4 and 5% ABV, while Imperial Stout fans will scoff if a beer doesn't hit at least 11 or 12% ABV. Since the ABV standard is used worldwide for all alcoholic beverages, it is perhaps the most important element of a beer's vital stats. Next, IBU, or International Bittering Units. A slightly more obscure acronym among beer's vital stats is a beer's IBU total. IBUs stand for International Bittering Units, a pretty good gauge of a beer's bitterness. Any fan of hoppy beers, such as American IPA or big boozy double IPAs, will know all about the IBU scale. Much like alcohol by volume, international bittering units have a scientific underpinning. IBUs measure the parts per million of isohumulone found in beer. Isohumulone is the acid found in hops that gives beer its distinct bitterness. Though the IBU scale can be used as a general guide for taste, the lower IBUs corresponding to less bitterness and vice versa, it's important to note that malt and other flavors can mask the taste of bitterness in beer. Overall, the combination of ABV and IBU on a can or a bottle of beer can convey an impressive amount of information when it comes to learning about a specific beer's flavor and aroma profile. SRM, or Standard Reference Method. Beer style and style family play a large role in a beer's appearance, but one vital stat actually quantifies it. While not quite as recognizable and widespread as alcohol by volume and international bittering units, SRM, or standard reference method, is about as close as the beer world comes to a unified way of gauging color. Multiple factors must be taken into account, but standard reference method is calculated by passing light of a particular wavelength through a one centimeter deep sample of beer and measuring the amount of light absorbed by the beer in that sample. While the standard reference method scale ranges from two to five, where you find lighter styles like Pilsners and light lagers, all the way up to 70s and 80s, the human eye can only see so many colors. 
So all beers beyond the upper 40s, Imperial Stouts, Black IPA, Barrel-Aged Porters, simply look opaque and black to us. Moving further along the SRM scale, beers at 7 to 15 SRM are generally amber, encompassing amber ales, pale ales, and most modern IPAs. In the 16 to 25 range, beers are mostly dark amber to brown, featuring barley wines, browned ales, and oud brunes, and others. Above 25 up to the 40s is where stouts and porters make their home. Though standard reference method isn't the end-all be-all of a beer's color, as malt, varietal, adjuncts, hop usage, and boil time all play a huge role in the color of beer, it serves as an easy-to-digest vital stat. Another less common acronym on a beer's label is OG, or Original Gravity. Though a wee bit more granular than, say, the easily understood numbers of ABV, IBU, and SRM, Original Gravity is defined as the relative density of the wort, the liquid that will ferment and become beer. That density revolves mostly around the quantity of fermentable sugars in the wort, which are fermented by the yeast and become alcohol. In terms of usefulness, OG is regarded as a guide to the alcoholic strength of the finished beer, but in a more brewer-friendly term than, say, ABV, which is very clear to anyone who wants to purchase any alcoholic beverage. FG, or final gravity. Directly related to OG, final gravity is a crucial metric in the brewing process and serves as a vital indicator of a beer's characteristics after fermentation. This measurement is often determined using a hydrometer or sacrometer, gauges the specific gravity, which is the density ratio between the beer and water. As the fermentation process concludes, final gravity showcases the residual unfermented compounds within the beer. However, it's important to note that this measurement doesn't consider the unique property of alcohol produced during fermentation as it's lighter than water. Consequently, this factor introduces a bias into the reading, resulting in what's known as apparent extract rather than real extract. Despite this limitation, final gravity remains an invaluable preliminary assessment at the end of fermentation. When coupled with the original gravity reading, it becomes a powerful tool for estimating the approximate alcohol content of the final beer product. So there you have it. While beer's vital stats might seem like an unapproachable series of letters, numbers, and decimal places, the truth is that these four acronyms serve to paint a fairly detailed picture of a beer in a very small amount of space, perfect for a beer can or bottle's artwork. While an immense amount of effort and work went into making these beers, consumers must be able to glance at a beer's vital stats and immediately comprehend what they mean and make more informed decisions as a result. Thanks to ABV, IBU, SRM, and OG, that's never been easier. Every week on KDLL, we're hearing from the movers and shakers on the Central Peninsula. We've got conversations with people across the community, from politicians. You know, how do we come together and make something happen that we're at least equally unhappy with? To artists. We all work with the same materials, but everybody creates their own unique items. That's the Kenai Conversation, every Wednesday at 10 a.m. and Saturday at 5 p.m. here on KDLL. The origins of the style of beer known today as porter date back to the early 1700s in Britain. 
It was the most popular style of beer in the English-speaking world until the 1870s. The production of porter was one of the driving forces of the Industrial Revolution, and it is the earliest style of beer for which we have anything approaching accurate records, as it was the style being brewed when such critical scientific instruments as the thermometer and the hydrometer were invented. George Washington drank porter. His favorite was brewed by one Richard Hare of Philadelphia, and we still have letters from him extolling its virtues and ordering extra stocks after a fire at the brewery in 1790. It seems likely that the beer style received its name from its popularity with the city porters of London. These men transported goods back and forth across the city on their backs and were frequently in need of serious refreshment. The true origin of porter remains obscure. One legend attributes its creation to a Ralph Harwood, the owner of Bell Brewhouse in Shoreditch, East London, in 1722. However, it seems more likely that the style evolved gradually from the earliest brown ales popular in London at the time, with no one individual being solely responsible. We do know that the original porters were a blend of different beers, some younger or fresher, with others that had been aged or staled in the terminology of the day. This aging took place initially in wooden casks, but these soon gave way to even larger wooden vessels or vats to enable the breweries to take advantage of economies of scale. With our current scientific knowledge, we can surmise that these wooden vats must have harbored both Lactobacillus and Britannomyces in the pores of the wood from which they were constructed. The microbes would have imported some acidity or sourness to the porter as it aged, and this contribution would be, have become a flavor component in the final blended product. The scale of porter production expanded tremendously throughout the 18th and early 19th centuries. Porter brewers were quick to incorporate early aspects of the Industrial Revolution, such as the steam engine. The size of their vats continued to grow, with capacities in excess of 25,000 barrels becoming common. However, these sizes were straining the limits of the technology available, as was demonstrated in October 1814 when a vat at the Mew Brewery filled with some 27,750 barrels burst. The resulting tidal wave of beer demolished nearby buildings, drowning or crushing eight people to death. Porter was also popular outside Britain, spawning some variations which are today considered separate beer styles in their own right. A stronger version of Porter, called Stout Porter, became very popular in Ireland when produced by a Dublin brewer named Arthur Guinness. Eventually, the second word was dropped, and this stout became a style in its own right, one which would eventually spawn its own family of sub-styles, such as Russian Imperial Sweet and Dry Stouts. English porter was also very popular in Russia, especially in the Baltic states, which were then under the rule of the czars. When British imports were eventually banned, local versions sprang up. These so-called Baltic porters actually use lager rather than the ale yeast used in Britain, but continue to be brewed to this day and are another recognized porter variant. Despite the huge popularity of porter in its heyday, we have only a vague understanding of how it must have tasted. The best we can do is to draw some reasonable inferences. The original porter, no doubt, was a deep shade of brown to mahogany in color, 
made from a grist of standard floor-malted brown malt of the day with some smoky notes from the kilning of the grain over open fires fueled by wood, straw, coal, or coke. After the invention of black patent malt in 1817, this brown malt was replaced by a combination of pale malt and black patent, as the new scientific instrumentation had demonstrated that this was a more efficient process. Porters appear to have been highly hopped, although the initial bitterness would have mellowed over the months of aging. And, of course, the presence of lactobacillus and Brettanomyces would have been responsible for the admiring mentions that have come down to us of the stale flavors of well-regarded porters from the 1800s. However, after a century and a half of popularity, tastes began to change, especially after the introduction of Pilsner-style lagers in the mid-19th century. In Britain, pale ales and bitters became the beers of choice, with porter entering a long, slow decline from about 1870 on. By the late 1950s, a few porters were still being brewed in London, but the style was clearly headed for oblivion. However, all that changed in 1975, when Fritz Maytag of Anchor Brewing in San Francisco created his Anchor Porter. This beer served as an inspiration to the new breed of American craft brewers who would begin brewing in the 1980s. Included among them was Jeff and Marcy Larson of Alaskan Brewing Company. Opening for business in 1986, by 1988, they would be producing their Alaskan Smoked Porter, the beer which has won more medals than any other at the Great American Beer Festival. These new Americanized porters tended to be stronger than their English cousins with more hop bitterness from using Pacific Northwest hop varieties. After a century of decline, porter was on the upswing again. The typical craft brewed porter of today will be medium brown to very dark brown, often with ruby-like highlights and a full tan-colored head. The aroma will have a medium light to medium strong dark malt presence, often with a lightly burnt character, suggesting coffee or dark chocolate. On the palate, the flavor profile is similar to the aroma with dark malt, coffee, and chocolate notes predominant. Alcohol by volume is typically 4.8 to 6.5, though stronger versions exist as well. If you're looking to taste locally produced porters, Cassock's Brewery regularly offers its Moose Point Porter, while Kenai River Brewing Company offers its Pothole Porter on occasion. St. Elias Brewing frequently has a porter on offer. Various brews include its popular Fair Trade Coffee Porter, its Vanilla Bean Porter, Baltic Porter, Colonial Porter, and H&H East India Porter. Cooper Landing Brewing has its Porcupine Island Porter, which is also available with blackberries added to it. While it no longer dominates the craft brewing scene, Porter remains one of the staple styles of American craft brewing. Well, that wraps up this month's show. I want to thank you all for your support. 
and your continued listening to Drinking on the Last Frontier. Our final quote this month is an ancient Egyptian proverb. The mouth of a perfectly happy man is filled with beer. Thanks, and until next time, cheers. Be the word.